Hello and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. Joining me today, it's just um Eugenie. Haha. Hi. Uh, at memes T D on Twitter if you're if you're a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Joe is off ill this week and we were going to have Julia at Angry Sai uh, on Twitter on this week, but technical issues have reared their heads. Um so it's just me and Eugenie uh for this bit anyway. Oh, um, the dream team. The dream <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe the podcast listeners are rejoicing secretly. Or well, they're probably not. They're, they're like, where's Joe? Bring back Tyrion, etc. Um, <laughs> it's been a difficult past week, uh, to say the least, with regards to politics and the role of women in politics. Um, Tory MP and Foreign Office Minister Mark Field was filmed aggressively removing a female climate change protester at a private dinner last week, leading to his suspension. Over the weekend, police were called to the flat of Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's partner, because of loud shouting and crashing being overheard by neighbours. The Labour MP Stella Creasy launched a campaign to raise awareness of the difficulties that mothers face working in politics, highlighting how the parliamentary rules are not designed for women. And to top it off, Donald Trump has had yet another rape accusation levied against him by writer E. Jean Carroll. It's almost been a week perfectly designed with events um, to link up um right like um this is something which which we we did briefly speak to julia about which julia wanted us to address how these things are not isolated incidents they're like patterns right in regards to the system and the exactly. western political system um so like what what do you think this this week has revealed about that about the the patriarchal structures which govern the system i think you've kind of answered the question there with the the patriarchal structures but just how <laughs> <laughs> but just how all pervasive they are and the way in which they they enter our life uh they enter our political processes and our public discourse in a way that is all encompassing you know from uh from the from the the treatment of uh the the female protester and the reaction to that which was mainly certainly judging from the the pretty terrible level of discourse that was going on on Twitter seemed to be a lot of people who were ideologically um, committed to defending Mark Field's actions um, and kind of justifying a, a violent act against a woman in order to, I don't know, make some comment about milkshaking. I don't know. It was all very bizarre. To you know, another rape ap- accusation against Donald Trump, someone who's faced you know, it must be over ten now. Accusations it is over of 10. yeah sexual assaults over the last two years, and we haven't really seen that made any dent on him or his standing or mm. you know the likelihood of his re-election next year, which personally feels quite high to me because you know I'm the mm. pessimist at heart as always, <laughs> and with Boris Johnson as well. Just the way that a domestic dispute disturbance at someone's house has been. If you ignore the thing about recording, the recording aspect of it, simply the idea that some people think it's an acceptable part of our public discourse to kind of argue that, oh, well, a bit of argy-bargy between partners is, you know, a private matter that happens in the kitchen and isn't isn't fit for, you know, for, pe- for neighbours to be intervening or for, for any kind of commentary whatsoever. Or the idea that maybe that might be a reflection of, you know, the potential... Uh, acceptability of Boris Johnson as a candidate. The idea that that's the ludicrous thing to raise, you know, the fact that a, a man might get in a screaming argument with his partner and the neighbours are so concerned they call the police. I don't know, like, the whole thing has just been... It's been reminder and reminder, and I've seen it in the reaction. The rea- It's almost the reaction to it as well, which has just compounded how mm. how we're just kind of enveloped by um by the kind of misogynistic, patriarchal kind of control and the way that women women's place in public life is just continually um uh threatened and you know violence is such an inherent part of that and it's just been i mean speaking from a personal perspective here it's just been a really profoundly depressing week in a way Mm. that i haven't felt like this in a long time but you know logging onto twitter which is always you know a kind of hellscape of nonsense was like really really squalid in a way it hasn't been for quite a long time i think the the reaction is something that we're both quite interested in the right word more just like concerned i suppose about uh like in the kind of pre-podcast chat as we referred to it before um you know we were talking about how everyone just seems to have gone absolutely insane a whole slew of people have decided that um issues concerning um 
violence and abuse against women, either physical, physic, physically or verbally, a second to ideological and political concerns of having your ideologically preferable candidate elected and um, the political concerns of your own career and your friend's own career and that kind of thing. Um, how do you think we've got to that stage? Huh, an existential question, one might say. I know that uh, <laughs> Julia, uh, who, yeah, as you said, very sadly wasn't able to be with us. Um, she hasn't died. <laughs> <laughs> May her memory be a blessing. No, no, she's she's very much alive in in on my in my Facebook messages. But um, no, I uh, what well, I would raise, I, what she would have raised if she could have been here was simply the fact that. Um, you know, you were kind of thinking about the way that this has come to light in the last few years, but mm. yeah, you know, the kind of issues into you. You mentioned Stella Creasy at the top. Mm. You know, the the issues and problems that Stella Creasy is raising about the difficulties about being a uh, a mother in Parliament, being a parent. Um, you know, not having not having uh, kind of leave and difficulties with dealing with. Um, childbirth as well so when like tulip sadiq had to postpone her c-section so she could vote on one of the brexit deals because she wasn't sure if her pair was going to be honored and you know all all this kind of thing um this idea that parliament is fundamentally so inaccessible to women who have who have families these aren't you know new issues these are issues and and problems that you know harriet Harman was campaigning about back in the 1980s you know when um she was when she when she came into parliament which was in 1982 it was 97% male and you know maternity leave and childcare provisions were the very first thing she ever spoke about in um in parliament back in the 80s and you you read there's an interesting interview with her in the guardian from last year i think she had a book that came out you and you kind of compare the issues that she's talking about there um to what Stella Creasy raised in her piece uh, last week you know it's the same it's the same topics really and you just think how little how little things have come along at all and you know both Stella Creasy and Harriet Harman have talked about how there's a fundamental lack of empathy or understanding about their role as mothers and how parliament is basically completely incapable of of dealing with it and there's been no institutional change about parental leave or crashes or having maybe voting in offices and not having to walk through the chamber to make it more accessible and not this wouldn't also just be for um obviously for women who are mothers but maybe disabled members of the house or other people with accessibility issues or people who are ill you know there's you know with such an arcane institution is just is just completely incapable of any change and you know the, our very you know house of government is structured around making it as comfortable as possible for a small subsection of of men who enjoy the the what the pomp and circumstance of the building which at least we forget is literally falling down if you ever needed a <clears throat> a, a metaphor for that well there we go uh see i can tell i'm gonna blow the mics here by getting annoying but um <laughs> you know you just you see the same you know the the kind of the way in which even even women who are trying to change and the women who are in power and who are trying to implement change for other women are kind of consistently beating up against this kind of fortress of of just kind of arcane institutionalism which refuses to self-reform and you know that's that's the quote-unquote establishment but when you look outside of that as well into um into thinking about the kind of populist waves which is sweeping europe as well that's something that seems to be fundamentally um uh about men for men mm. it's about masculinity white masculinity and you know the people who are demeaned in that are they are women and they are ethnic minorities it's also mm. trans women and disabled people you know it's there's a whole kind of slew of issues i think which you can kind of you can see you can see how they all interconnect and the way in which they've kind of been realized in the last week have been obviously quite divergent uh, thinking about physical violence versus structural violence, but then obviously we, as as young woke feminists that we all are, we know that you know, um, structural violence often becomes physical violence, and you know, and all that. I'm, <laughs> I won't get too mm. theoretical on the whole frontier. Well, it's it's definitely excusing um, physical violence as we've as as we've seen. You know, like the the, the institutional beliefs that like um, 
it's fine to aggressively manhandle a peaceful female protester like that. Um, that it's fine to be like screaming at your partner. And, and, and the fact that there were um, swathes of outriders willing to go into the media and on the news being like, oh, well, that's a private issue. It's finding different ways to excuse it. Like with the field video, it was um, that, oh, well, the protesters shouldn't have been there anyway. Or what if she carried a gun? It's like, well, she didn't. We know that she didn't. They knew that she didn't. With the Boris thing, it's like a private issue. It was like, well, it ceased to be a private issue when the shouting is so loud that the neighbors can hear it and it's disturbing their uh, existence in their own home as you put it with this with the Stella Creasy stuff it's um all like oh but we're upholding the traditions this is always the way it's been it's like it's like in every 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 time something like this comes up and you think like yeah yeah that's fair enough yeah things will change now the the, the people defending the old ways and the old orders come out with these um increasingly absurd justifications um and often in, often they're they're absurdly hypocritical as well um we we were also talking about this in the, in the, the pre-chat podcast um uh about how it's the same people who were deriding the milkshakers a couple of weeks ago and saying that how like they were a threat to democracy and civil discourse and that kind of thing who see absolutely no problem with the way that mark field was handling the exactly, protester yeah. uh, and, and it's just absolutely insane that there's no sense that maybe the like actual physical aggression is worse than just like chucking a milkshake over someone too too many people can't see things for what they very clearly and openly are which is like blatant and often violent misogyny yeah i i agree and you know what was causing me quite great pain i guess over the weekend was when you know the boris johnson news was coming out and you had people going on the radio or going on the Sunday shows or being interviewed or whatever, making the defense that, well, you know, it was a private dispute in a, in a private household and, you know, it's a lover's quarrel and whatever. And, um, you, you just think that's the kind of defense that people used to use, you know, mm. before, before, the, before we changed our laws about, for instance, uh, you know, can can a spouse commit rape against their spouse and um you know before we really had any kind of cultural reckoning about domestic violence and you know we're nowhere near that level of 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 kind of an institutional change coming here yet but you know they were saying it's a private matter and all i could think of as well according to women's aid and the office of national statistics on average two women are killed every week by their partner or ex-partner in england and wales and you know that I'm sure many of the uh, I'm sure many of the parties involved in that previously defended themselves consistently by thinking about their relationship as purely a private matter. There hasn't there hasn't been a a culture shift enough. Clearly, I mean, and and the question you raised is, you know, the people who are going out, you know, these Daily Telegraph columnists who are going on, hmm. you know, online and writing their latest squalid hot take, and you just think. I almost don't know what's worse. Is that it's always the, that question, isn't it? Is it like, are you genuinely so uh, disconnected from reality you don't realise what you're saying is wrong? Mm. Or are you just so cynical that you don't care? Like, it doesn't mm. matter. You might know deep in your heart that you're doing a bad thing, but, you know, hitching yourself on the Daily Telegraph, Daily Mail, whatever, is now economically beneficial enough to you that you're willing to kind of go on there and reiterate these kind of kind of pseudo-Victorian arguments about what happens between a man and a woman. I think it, it it just goes to show how it only takes like a few small things to like completely overdo decades of change. Um, you were talking about the, um, the, the, the fight to abolish the idea that a, a, a man cannot rape his, rape his wife. Um, it, was, it was like 1992 that that was finally made illegal in America, I think. Yeah, something like something that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, and and I, 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 periodically people will like bring that up as an example of how like backwards America is. But like this 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 kind of thing, you're you're completely right. Foregrounds that even further um, because we're saying like, well, it's a private matter, and it's like it's not a private matter because this person, this individual, is the probable next prime minister of the United Kingdom. Mm. And there's just the very basic fact that if, as I said, if you're shouting so loudly, it's disturbing your neighbours. That then becomes their matter as well. And like this idea of like, oh well, I just leave them to it, and it's like, what would you? I don't believe that you would. Like, no. if you were if you were, like, 
hearing shouting and screaming at one in the morning, you'd be terrified. You'd be like, oh my God, is everything okay? You're not going to be lying there like, well, it's their thing. I'm just going to get on with my life. And like, you know, drinking your tea in bed, listening to like literal screaming beyond the walls. It's, like, it's absolutely insane to think that these people would be doing that. They would definitely be recording things and on the phone. And they're just like logging on and writing their polemic columns and trying to pretend that they're not. Because as we've been saying, they're so ideologically signed up to the project that they don't want these um personal flaws to jeopardize it um i think that that taps into the kind of like broader uh problems which have been like plaguing politics for the past couple of years of people too willing to let personal flaws slide and too willing to sign up to individuals and charismatic individuals and to the idea of a single personality can solve everything and they are willing to excuse bad behavior um, to get their preferred ideological end state is what we've seen with um, people excusing anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, what we've seen in the past weekend of Boris Johnson, what we saw in 2016 and continued with Trump, um, what we see with Farage. And it's what we will see again and again for as long as this um, collective madness um, has its hold over global politics. Um, and it's thoroughly depressing and I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> welcome Sorry, to the listeners. party uh, well, <laughs> welcome to the social review i mean first of all i, I agree with you you know what, with what you were just saying and certainly at least from a pragmatic point of view it is inexplicable and slightly alarming to me that surely the you know if you're boris johnson and this was just <laughs> an argument between you and your girlfriend and you know whatever everyone's everyone it's all fine everything's fine you know mm-hmm. it was just a misunderstanding Surely the line is, um, you know, my girlfriend and I gone into an argument. Our neighbours called the police because that's what happens when you live, you know, if you live very near each other because that's, you know, people that happens in uh, blocks of flats and in kind of other shared places where you live very near to each other. Police came. Everything's fine. It's all fine. You know, not quite nothing to see here, officer, because I I wouldn't... um, I wouldn't (laughs) suggest Mm -hmm. that that's an acceptable uh, reaction either. (laughs) But, you know... But that, should be, that would have been the line. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and instead this kind of prevarication and then sending, you know, as you were just saying, sending in the outriders and all these kind of weird personal attacks and the kind of the way there's been this response to it, which has just been instead of, oh, does this raise... As if it's like a Remainer plot, like, yeah, in a yeah, political and, terms, which is just, yeah, like, complete mm, rubbish. Yeah, and you just, it, yeah, I very, not only bizarre, but genuinely quite worrying if... if people genuinely believe and maybe if they don't even believe it or not but they're still putting it out there you know Mm. if you if you hear your neighbors screaming at each other in the middle of the night and you're a bit concerned don't call the police because it's a private matter well it's a very dangerous mindset when we see examples of uh, misogyny or homophobia anti-semitism islamophobia you know transphobia all of it you have to hold ourselves accountable as much as we would hold our opposition accountable for it and if we can't yeah. do that we, we we have nothing we don't we don't have anything left if we can't you know if we can't put our basic values out there and hold ourselves to the same level that i'm gonna hold you know um nigel farage and boris johnson to, then i don't really see the point of having you know being left wing believing in everything that we believe in um it's like what we were talking about a few weeks ago in our episode with miriam you know factionalism can become a disease and you know it can infect the way you look at the world and i would hope that you know certainly what we believe in and kind of what our website also is all about is to say that you know if we can transcend we can leave that behind and seek new ideas new understandings and have a a kind of vigorous level of personal responsibility and some of that involves i think i said moral courage last time which i think was quite a good phrase so i think i will reiterate it again in my my rally to arms but um you know we've got to we've got to do better and you know if if the next time this comes up because it's going to come up again if it happens to be you know someone quote unquote on our side someone that we like and respect you know then there there has to be there has to be the same vigor and accountability really um yeah and that if we don't have that what do we have Joining Eugenie and I as our guest this week is 
Hi, uh, I'm Will Anderson, and on Twitter I go by at Will underscore M underscore Anderson. Will has written a very good piece for the Social Review this week on Disney um, and uh, the Monopoly, which Disney now has after its purchase of 20th Century Fox, um, and the complicated relationship between um, loving the art that a company studio produces and having concerns um, with regards to its... um, business practices what sparked you to write the article in the first place like why what led you to think like this it probably is bad uh, that um things are the way they are um i think part of it was because sort of i i, I saw popping up a lot just on on twitter and on instagram on social media generally a lot of kind of memes and jokes and stuff about how how amazing this was mm. and how uh, how great it is that you know uh, these kind of like Marvel characters in particular are now uh, like the X Men and the Fantastic Four, who uh, their film rights were previously owned by Fox. How they've sort of come back to Marvel, which is owned is by how, Disney. Is how people put it. Yeah, and 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 how sort of uncritical a lot of this was, contrasted by the fact that there were reports that you know up to four thousand people uh, mm. who worked at Fox would be losing their jobs. And it struck me as really, it it really frustrated me because I, you know, I when I initially heard the news uh, about it, I think it was about a year ago now, um, uh, that that Disney announced there that they were going to uh, buy Fox. I, you know, I initially was like, oh, cool, you know, the X Men can be in the next Avengers film. Um, <laughs> but then I sort of found myself also being disgusted at you put the politics hat on. And then like, yeah, I, I I sort of. You know, I, I I was taken aback about how uncritical I was being, and 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 how actually one you know trillion dollar company buying another trillion dollar company, uh, I shouldn't be celebrating that. I, I'm just interested in in Disney, uh, in general, uh, because they're a good kind of lens to look at media monopolies through, mm. uh, and the kind of influence that, uh companies can have when they become too big and too influential and because there isn't really any other company any other film studio like disney arguably any other no company um like like the the cultural imprint which disney has exactly exactly like no one no one has a childhood um kind of connection to comcast for example (laughs) speak for yourself mate (laughs) (laughs) um but but with disney there is that kind of thing where you know everyone um has seen something by disney probably in the past month mm. you know even people living out i saw uh, it on saturday toy story 4 well exactly yeah yeah yeah. So, <laughs> yeah everyone's seen something that's been made by disney relatively recently and it's it's so culturally do- dominant at the minute um and that's only going to get that's only going to increase with their uh now that they're now that they've bought Fox. So one of the things I kind of talk about is about how what's worrying me is the fact that Disney will soon own, or that they, they now own a controlling share of Hulu. Mm. Uh, I think that's pronounced Hulu. Um, yes, yeah, I think. So. Yeah, which yeah. is like a streaming service in America. Uh, and they're also starting their own streaming service, uh, which is just going to exclusively kind of hold uh, Disney content. Mm-hmm. And Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah, Disney Plus. And... Um, What's kind of worrying about worrying to me, and this is something I've sort of seen with Netflix uh, and to a lesser extent Amazon Prime, is there's a danger that companies will be owning not only the art uh, or or the the product, but the the distribution methods of that product, mm-hmm. um, and that's quite worrying in terms of again their kind of expanding influence. And one of the things I talk about is how there was a Supreme Court decision. Um, that basically ruled it illegal for um, film companies to own or, or film studios to own cinema chains because it was anti-competitive. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of ruled that they can't do that because then they're owning the distribution method and it's not fair for anyone else. And the danger with kind of streaming services is that, or, or, or them, them owning these streaming services, is that, it's, yeah, they will that, be able it's to... That in a modern in a modern yeah exa- exactly it's, it's the exact, exact same, same thing oh. but you use a laptop now 
it's interesting, you know, if you're seeing the Disney Fox takeover as being part of the the tradition of like at least that's like traditional Hollywood studio studios. Mm. Although, you know, um Disney is like obviously like a huge juggernaut that has film parks and, you know, mm. things like that which uh, other other companies don't. Kind of viewing it in opposition to Netflix, um, which I think we're kind of maybe haven't directly named, but is kind of the uh, the spectre in the room a bit here. Mm. You know, if we're seeing it also as not only just a way of engaging with the the idea of kind of content monopolies, but also just the way in which we we're kind of going to be engaging with media in the future. I was just reading up that um, so Disney released ten films in two thousand and eighteen, and Netflix made 93 of their own films mm. because you know netflix just you know it goes for quantity rather than quality and i yeah. say that as someone who has sat through many quite dire um netflix original <laughs> netflix films, films. But it's interesting almost if you view it as a kind of the what will be the kind of disney juggernaut as a media company that is although they're they're setting up their streaming service still fundamentally will be about pulling mm. audiences into the cinema mm. versus netflix as a kind of a kind of tech company really yeah it's closer to silicon yeah. valley about about making about making money through quantity it's it's yeah. interesting to see how how the kind of chips are going to fall really what's interesting to me as well is that um, Netflix and Disney are both trying to kind of move into each other's territory. Disney by starting these streaming services and buying uh, a streaming service. And Netflix by producing, you know, for lack of a better term, Oscar bait and kind of seeking that kind of approval. What's what's worrying to me is that the fact that these two uh, companies in particular sort of, um, are becoming so huge. Um, it's concerning that it might be that, you know, in 10 years time you go to the cinema to watch a disney film at home you watch netflix uh and that's the two things you do i mean that's quite a dystopian uh kind of outcome i feel <laughs> just a little um, bit oh. it reminds me that, that just made me think of the monty python and the meaning of life opening when um it shows the family the conveyor belt and they've got the mickey mouse the mickey mouse yeah <laughs> <laughs> netflix also are trying to move into owning the distribution and production in mm. a physical sense because there were talks of they wanted to buy the el capitan theater i i'm gonna mm. have to it is it is the el capitan theater. Yeah, yeah 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 they they, they wanted to buy that um which would be absolutely insane if they did cause it's this big classic hollywood cinema um and, they, and then they would presumably presumably be screening netflix original content through that, uh, and that just ties into back into what we were saying earlier. These are old problems resurfaced with with shiny new coats of paint. And I think this is sort of why, and, and I mentioned it in the piece about um, sort of Elizabeth Warren's uh, mm. plans to break up tech companies. And sort of going off on that kind of tangent, you can really seem that going in terms of this kind of yeah, these are old problems but kind of with with a modern shine. You know, you can see all the problems with Airbnb, with Uber um with things like postmates in america where this is effectively these problems where you have these deregulated services that is effectively you know what would happen if we got rid of all regulations on taxis but they're different because it's got an app it's about it's about the way we treat um certainly if you're thinking about like the airbnb uber model it's about yeah. the way that tech companies kind of self view themselves and the way they they want to have their their position be in the world and i think with netflix you're saying you, know, you can see in their in their desire now to kind of create um oscar award-winning films you know it started with uh i guess beast of no nation was the first one but then mm. most and then last year obviously we had roma being the huge oscar contender that it was mm. you know it's like they crave validation to a certain extent from the establishment so that that you could see that as a reflection of the kind of enduring power of the kind of old structures of hollywood mm. but the kind of disney fox amalgamation obviously disney fox is not a kind of silicon valley utopian yeah. tech startup but there's a kind of a a, a similar um you know, the the kind of issues that it's raising is the same issues about, you know, having having the means of production of just whether it's uh getting getting your food delivered to you, uh getting an getting a cab or going to watch a movie. You know, it's the yeah, same exactly. it's the same issues about these huge superstructures controlling basically our lives to a certain extent. God, that is mm. dystopian, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is so you brought up Elizabeth Warren's plan to break up tech monopolies, which I think um is at least worth considering 
but it's really surprising that the Disney Fox deal was kind of allowed to go through by regulators, I think, because um, to me, this, this is just kind of like the logical conclusion of unrestrained free market capitalism. You end up with the same problem mm. which made capitalists want to uh, avoid kind of like communist or like um, overtly state-owned economies um, where you have one single group controlling um, uh, a, a dominant share of the market and owning the like means and the distribution of production and that kind of thing. Um, but instead it's under a capitalist system because uh, film studios can't successfully compete if Disney owns successful intellectual property um owns enough popular franchises to consistently make the most money and when they have films making the most money you know like uh endgame is being re-released and it's going to become the highest grossing film of all time um sooner or later beating avatar which now that disney's bought fox is also a disney film mm. um a majority i think probably of the highest grossing 1 billion plus films of all time are Disney releases. And when you have that kind of clout, you can make demands on theatres, as you as you say in the article, um, that other studios could not. And, and when, and when uh, a company is allowed to do that, um, because we're operating in that kind of unrestrained free market system, um, then that's not grounds for competition. It's, it basically ceases to become what capitalism is supposed to be. So I just find it very strange that more capitalists... Um, don't speak up about this and and why it isn't a kind of like consensus view just like based on how things have actually happened like based on evidence that um if you're going to have a market economy then you do need a regulating state even so to make sure that the market remains fair um and competitive because if you don't have a regulatory state which leads the market not being competitive what's the point of capitalism if you're taking like the kind of ideas of of capitalism as as this idea you know this kind of uh bastion of freedom um if you're taking it from that then it, it's also worrying because these companies can become so influential and so huge that they can basically bully governments and heavily lobby to make the conditions even more favorable for themselves Go, going on the wavelength of these companies having too much power um the only way the, the only reason they have this much power is because ultimately all companies are at the mercy of um, consumers, right? Mm. So uh, this past weekend, Toy Story 4 was released. It's very good. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, go and see it. Um, surprisingly, it feels quite necessary as a film, even though Toy Story 3 seemed to wrap things up. But anyway, that's a tangent. Toy Story 4 kind of underperformed um, against Disney expectations. So Disney were expecting it to open to around 140 million opening weekend in America. It, it actually opened to... Um, somewhere between 110 and 120 million this past summer has been quite bad at the box office and mm. for like critical um critical reactions in general i think off the top of my head i think end game and toy story 4 are the only um blockbuster films release which have had a plurality of positive reviews maybe aladdin as well or disney films obviously surely this is only a problem so long as people keep paying big money to see Disney films. Because if suddenly people, uh, audiences, stop flocking out to see new Marvel, Star Wars, um, Pixar, etc., etc., big franchise movies owned by Disney, then they will cease to have um, that kind of like hegemonic clout. Like, surely one of the reasons they become so successful is because the films they make are actually quite good in general. And I think Disney is probably the only major film studio out of the big five now that they own fox um that understands that the way to maintain and ensure consistent financial uh, good financial returns is by adhering to uh, critical success can you foresee um a future in which um this reality stops and and if it gets to the stage where creatively at Disney things go awry and um, the films stop being as good and people stop going out to see them and spending much money on them, can you see um, this kind of like dominance faltering or has it become like institutionalized to an extent where Disney would remain dominant um, but could afford to shovel out bad, bad content? I think with a lot of these films, they've become uh, too, too big to fail. Uh, and actually... What has what we've seen has happened, uh, you know, with it's one of one of the sort of things, one of the ways that they make Marvel films is they uh, schedule a lot of time to, for reshoots to make sure that these films won't be, you know, yes, they're focus yeah, tested yeah. and stuff. And and 
you know, you can look at the fact that uh, on the Han Solo uh, spin-off, um, the original directors, uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, were fired uh, in favour of bringing Ron Howard in because it felt that what they were doing was sort of, you know, wouldn't be accepted uh, by the fans. Um, Solo did end up underperforming, um, but I think... But a similar situation happened on uh, the Star Wars, the Star Wars spin-off before that, Rogue One. They make it so that if a film isn't working, they will take drastic measures to make sure that it does not fail. I think it's it's entirely possible that people become you know fed up with these characters or you know that these films aren't as fresh anymore. But Disney could then sell off the rights to those characters and, and buy other ones. I think it's interesting because I guess like we were kind of talking about at the top like so many's view on this is kind of colored by it's it's hard to like not think about the kind of interesting potential of like creatively and you know mm. you get and then the more you think about the kind of inherent parasitic <laughs> monopoly aspect of it the more alarming <laughs> it is i think in um in peter bradshaw's write-up about the takeover uh, of the takeover in the guardian he calls um he calls it the love child, uh, the love scene of Alien versus of Alien and Predator, <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty, uh, was pretty spot on. But um, well, Disney now owns them both. So. Yeah, God. <laughs> <laughs> I do think you're you're kind of right, and the way that it all kind of self perpetuates a kind of ouroboros of just kind of like business eating business is um, it should be more cause for alarm, and certainly, you know, you do you do worry a bit about um, so for Fox, uh, Fox Searchlight is their major the kind of sub-studio within 21st Century Fox, yeah. which makes the more uh, kind of, I'm putting air marks around this, but kind of adult films, quotation mark, um, you know, the films often which also are up for awards contention, it's quieter films, they don't necessarily make lots of money, they don't necessarily even win the awards, but, you know, they've made the decision to fund the films and to uh, to distribute them. And I do hope that Disney just doesn't decide to kind of cut down on their operations because it's not, you know, making endgame money. But I think mm-hmm. what you what you were saying about the kind of future of the model that we're currently living in and whether it's sustainable, I think it's interesting you raise Solo because I actually think um, as much as superhero films and like the blockbuster can feel like a kind of unstoppable juggernaut which doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, which I kind of think is true, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, Solo is a good example of a film which, um, you know, didn't perform as well as it did, had very bad word of mouth, which is probably what killed it over anything else. And it's interesting coming off the back of that, that then uh, uh, the Kathleen Kennedy and all the, the Lucasfilm people um, in Disney decided to shutter uh, a couple of other films that they had kind of been dancing about putting into production, including like a Boba Fett prequel and i think there was like an obi-wan kenobi Obi-Wan, prequel yeah. they were talking there's, about there's as well been talk about doing obi-wan as a disney plus series yeah um, picking up from the the disney plus thing i think that's how they've they're very good at learning from that failure and yeah. so one of the things they're doing instead of doing more budget standalone star wars things they're gonna put more stuff on disney plus and they've sort of trying to you know do a kind of hyper high budget tv show which which they've got coming up this was the mandalorian um it looks really and moving good. moving yeah. more to that really kind of trying to trying to make the, the the game of thrones of star wars as mm. opposed to the uh you know um marvel model pg um, yeah and and you know we'll see how that works for them it's yeah they are learning from their failures um which is what makes me pessimistic about the idea of them <laughs> just sort of going away that Disney are good at their jobs. Yeah, <laughs> it's something I talk about in the pieces. That yeah, I am a, I am a fan of this stuff, and it is t- to be a consumer of these characters in particular. It you know it is a, a a good time. What I'm concerned about is 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 the kind of implications it has on a wider scale. Um, but I mean, yeah, if you if you want the new Game of Thrones, but it's Star Wars, you know, we're gonna get that. Um, it's just at the expense of however many jobs that, and people's lives uh <laughs> to put it in super uh kind of harsh contrast it's the reality though i think you're yeah. right to don't get too sucked down and you know your your kind of 
what we perceive might be to be our kind of harmless enjoyment of the movies um to be like yeah it's uh, it's got a real world implications and they're quite scary once again you've been sending in your questions uh to us on twitter and yet again we've had lots of very good questions uh returning to the podcast to join eugenie and i to answer them we have i'm henry i tweet at al sanctuarist Hello. So uh, last week's guest, Callum O'Dwyer, um, at Callum J. O'Dwyer on Twitter, asks, is Steve Bannon a charlatan or someone we should be worried has ties to certain parts of the Tories and European far right? I'm going to say he can be both um, and is perhaps more charlatan than the latter or rather has ties, but maybe not like seismic um, influence uh maybe more so influence in british uh corners than european quarters because his um big um the movement i think it was called project didn't really take off uh, in the european elections but uh, what do you guys think the thing about steve bannon is that he's like the world's biggest and saddest flexor he is desperate for attention and he will do anything necessary to get it so with the johnson thing for example i suspect it i mean i think the thing is right if he is a charlatan that doesn't have to make him less dangerous in fact there's a a real political power to naked charlatanry. But I think that in terms of actually having real policy influence, I think that's very limited just because he has no policy ideas which are coherent. I think the problem is more yeah, I think that the the like what I'm kind of rambling towards is the idea that the problem is not Steve Bannon as a person. The problem is that like the ideological currents which are informing mainstream conservatism are terrifyingly close to Steve Bannonism, which is how someone who's such an obvious charlatan can get in with people like the next prime minister of the UK, probably. It's because actually, is there that much of a difference between the kind of Steve Bannon like, okay, it's particularly uh, desperate and uh, radicalised, but the, between the like language he uses about Muslims and all the kind of the camp of the saints and the Christian civilization, where's the difference between that and like, it's a difference of degree between that and letterbox women who are a threat to our safety, it's not a difference of kind. So uh, you reference the kind of like ideological currents uh, influencing mainstream conservative thought. Um, is this like a correlation equals or doesn't equal causation thing? Because like uh, you're right, they are close to steve bannon's mindset but is that because of people like steve bannon or steve bannon himself or uh is that like a separate thing i don't think it is a separate thing i, I think it is down to the influence of bannon um in which case we can um say that we should be worried um about him i think would be the correct answer to callum's question um but i i agree with you that that doesn't necessarily mean he can't be a charlatan my thinking is kind of that um it's a slight it's a it's an issue of kind of a difficulty with analyzing things not in terms of there being one kind of agent one like principal mover like a bananism which one great man is kind of coming up with and i think that's a general failing of our culture to really consider things in that kind of more structural sense in that more yeah, yeah, yeah. general sense so yeah i guess that's my thinking that i entirely agree with you that bannon is an important and worrying figure but i think he's important and worrying because he is a reasonably effective and um you know it got a good media presence kind of a uh, messenger of ideas which are just very much percolating in our current political thought and that's something we should be really worried about in itself but you can also be remarkably ineffective because like like i said like the movement failed um he got himself kicked out of trump's cabinet i think i've always maintained the thing the thing which is ultimately the biggest threat to uh, far-right um, politicians is themselves rather than any exterior influence. The thing which ultimately brings these people down is the fact that they are hyper-individualist. Um, it's basically just a massive dick-measuring contest um, uh, once you boil down on their politics and policies. Um, and inevitably that always comes to a head, and it did come to a head, and it led to Steve Bannon being kicked out. It's led to Trump struggling to fill his cabinet. Um and general dysfunction of the heart of government and i would bet considerable money that that is what we will see in the inevitable Johnson government i agree with everything you've been saying um nice <laughs> it's always nice isn't it what's been a great source of you know amusement to me in these dark dark times is that steve bannon took you know the the ethno nationalists of europe and asked them if they had things in common with each other and could they work together and they kind of went well you know 
thing about nationalism is you don't really <laughs> want to work with the French if we're Italian, etc., etc. That, mean... That's the main cognitive dissonance with the entire <laughs> attempt at a global nationalist project. It fundamentally doesn't work. I, I agree that the kind of charlatanry and the kind of individualism of it all is, um, is alarming. I think Steve Bannon is like an incredibly alarming person and it's shocking to me that Boris Johnson really thinks he can... If if he isn't if he is in contact with um, Bannon, he thinks he can can maintain his kind of pre two thousand and sixteen. I'm a kind of man of liberal London vibe. He's kind of still trying to pretend he's both at the same time. And you know, mm. if there was anyone who was ever so counter to the whole spirit of multiculturalism and that kind of <laughs> what's meant to be that kind of what they perceive to be metropolitan conservatism, it is a a man who is a white ethno-nationalist and, you know, let's not beat around the bush about what Steve Bannon represents. It is, mm. you know, neo-Nazi rallies in Charlottesville and it is... Um, Wear it as a badge of honour. Yeah, exactly. The, the Boris stuff you were saying seeks nicely into the next question from um, Kieran, who was on last week as well, um, at Roy Hattersley on Twitter. Uh, how likely do you think Boris being Prime Minister for a day or a very small amount of time uh, actually is? Um, I think, so what you were saying, Eugenie, about he he boris is attempting to maintain this like um incomprehensible coalition of people like steve bannon and uh within the tory party they're like mark francois um erg wing and also people like matt hancock this coalition doesn't work um it will not work it will fail very quickly i think this is almost a certainty um but what all these people are banking on is that boris through sheer charisma is going to keep them all together um that isn't going to happen um and, and that ties back into what i was saying about like the hyper individualism of of this strand of far-right politics eventually it is their own undoing it it will be boris's on boris johnson's undoing that he thought his own kind of like you know force of personality could like save the tory party when in actuality it is this kind of like that it will be that unfettered belief in his sense of self that um leads to uh political another um another political crisis when that coalition inevitably fails and you end up in the same place we've been for the rest of the year where you can't pass a brexit deal do you guys agree i do i think that the thing is so over the past three years of hell and purgatory and then back into hell again i've decided that we should never try actually three years today um i've decided we should literally never trust anything which has like mentions like the unwritten constitution or this like one neat procedural trick will save our liberal democracy but with that said there was a story in the times the sunday times i've forgotten what day of the week it is so possibly today no yesterday yesterday was sunday about how apparently um i think it was reported that one of the uh moderate cabinet ministers i think it might have been grieve oh sorry i think grieve so one of the uh Brexit rebels and with possible alliance from one of the moderate cabinet ministers, so people like Liddington, uh, was basically saying that Johnson couldn't command a majority in the House of Commons because they wouldn't support him. And at the end of the day, the Conservative Party's leadership contest has absolutely nothing to do with who should be the next prime minister, if that makes sense. Like the only thing that matters is commanding the confidence of the House of Commons. So I think there is a there is actually a chance, to my mind, to answer the question that like it is possible that Boris Johnson could like win, sweep in, maybe even make his appointments, and then it will become increasingly clear he just doesn't have the support for the Queen to call him and ask him to form a government. Of course, what happens then is about 17 different people try and form a government in the next two weeks. We have an election and everything is on fire. It all depends on like people like uh, Grieve and Clark and Liddington and so on getting some backbone. And I personally think that Johnson can obfuscate for long enough that until like the until it's too late for them to do anything. But there is still a chance that he will be like our shortest serving prime minister. Or not even quite our prime minister at all. I do think there is part of this which is which is trying to look at it from from a kind of narratorial perspective of like of historical irony of like boris johnson has wanted to be prime minister his whole life he finally gets the chance and then he immediately loses it because of his own mistakes uh, wouldn't that be funny i think i think that's partially what's informing people's analysis of this but i do agree with what you were saying um, in the sunday times story i agree with you that we can kind of hope that with the time story 
um, that the Tory rebels will kind of pull their thumbs out. But, you know, at least we forget that our previous experience with them over the last two years hasn't been of them particularly coming through at any point. I think Tobias Elwood was saying this afternoon that um, he would he would allow a no deal to happen, basically. Or I can't quite remember the, the kind of constitutional details of it. But I just would like to reiterate how much I agree with Henry, you know, the idea that the idea that that some people I think still maintain, which is like, as you say, like one day, there'll be a day when like the unwritten constitution will save us or like, you know, there'll be like some some seismic event and everything will turn out in our favour. Um, I'm just not sure about that. But yeah, I, I, I can kind of see um, Boris Johnson being hoist by his own petard. But uh, and I would enjoy the kind of um, the the spiritual unity of that, if nothing else. But um, yeah, I'm a little bit pessimistic, I have to say. I think the Fixed Term Parliaments Act has really a lot to answer for. And when I eventually gain the power to control time uh, one of, on the bucket list, it's not like top three or top four things I'm going to mess with and change and make but, the world but better. Fifth. It's fifth. But like, yeah, like solidly up in the top ten is, um, yeah, at all costs, making sure that bloody act doesn't get passed because... It's really, um, it's really doing a lot to keep the Tories in power forever. I'm just gonna go write this, write this time travel script. <laughs> um, this might like segue embarrassingly neatly into the next question, but I think the reason for the embarrassing, also uh, like perpetually, why are you telling on yourself quite so much? Um, one weird trick to save democracy issue is like this bad Whig history where it's like. Britain has the most enlightened institutions in the world. We are the mother of parliaments. We love our glorious revolution and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, and this will come through for us and everything will go back to being like merry-go-rounds and flowers and gardens and everything we love about the queen and shaking hands and we'll all become sensible again and our political class will come to its senses. And it's like, are you sure our institutions aren't so rotten at this point? There's not really that return point because I do not have that optimism and I envy anyone who does. You're right. It seeks nicely into the next question um, from Alex Pellet. Uh, hi, Alex. Um, opinions on the backwards versus forwards facing degree subject comment in the Simon Cooper article. Personally doubt it would hold much weight today, but obviously wasn't at Oxford in the 80s. Uh, neither were we, as it turns out. Maybe when Eugenie gains the ability to time travel, then we will be. But um, but yeah. Oh, uh, mate, it's all, it's, all, it's all changing then. <laughs> for, for context, um, uh, there was an article in the Financial Times over the weekend about um, Oxford in the 1980s and how... Uh, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Michael Gove, Jeremy Hunt, George Osborne basically all knew each other and how awful it is um, and how they all got their starts in like um, the Oxford Union, the debating societies and like student newspapers, that kind of thing um, and how they've just all ended up being politicians at the same time and it's like basically a continuation of that. Um, but there's an offhand comment about how the Brexiteers all studied backwards-facing degrees and so history and classics in English in Michael Gove's case. Uh, was the um, Remainers, the future Remainers, so David Cameron, Peter Mandelson, etc., uh, etc., et all did PPE. As to uh, Cambridge historians, um, what do you guys think about um, backwards-facing and forwards-facing um, degree subjects? Do you think that's a thing? Um, do you think that can, like, your, your choice of degree uh, and your relationship with the education which you pursue can, can influence your politics and ideology? Um, or do you think there are too many other facts at play to really um, put it down in those kind of terms? I'm not going to sound a bit too much like I'm, I don't know, reciting my undergraduate personal statement, but um, and I, I, I don't prescribe to the sense of history as, you know, I'm not going to start going, oh, um, to understand the future, you must first know the past <laughs> or whatever that quote is. But... <laughs> Um, Winston Churchill. Ah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Whoever controls the levers of the future and the past, and it's all all well. I don't know, but um, I I do think that um, what I see to be the larger structural issue here is not really to do with PPE versus history versus classics versus English or whatever, but I think there's something in the idea that having a political class who comes out of the same two institutions with a very similar institutional culture especially around not just the debating chamber, so the kind of um, standing up there, having an argument for an argument's sake, uh, and it doesn't really kind of mean anything or come to anything, but also just the the kind of structure of an Oxbridge Humanities degree, which um, 
uh, quite often centers around supervision. So, you know, uh, you're writing, you write a high quantity of essays, uh, normally about one or two a week, depending on what subject you do. And you have a one-on-one session about the essay um, with a senior academic. And you have to kind of talk about what you've written, basically. And speaking as someone who's churned out of that system, and I would like to say for the record, I do no longer attend Cambridge so I am uh, I am got, and I now go got, to a different university in London so um I'm in the clear but um we've got past present and future on the podcast <laughs> we're truly the most unrepresentative uh, possible panel to <laughs> to talk about these issues the kind of conventional wisdom I think has always been that the supervision system basically gives you the ability to bullshit um you know you're writing an essay you're you in a week you're inducing a lot of information incredibly quickly um you kind of go to the supervision, you give a passable defense of what you've argued. Uh, you try and not show the fact you probably did all the work in like two and a half days when you were hungover, um, having spent you know, three days at a party or, you know, whatever it might be. This is libel. Ah. <laughs> I've never been hungover in my life. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you're a better person than I was as an undergrad. So I think there is potentially a structural critique that you could make there and about how this this kind of like short, sharp and, you know, just the ability to speak confidently about um, an issue that you might not necessarily actually have a full grasp on the topics, but it might be similar f- for, say, if someone gets past a ministerial brief and then they go and stand in the House of Commons and have to go and uh, talk about the topic there. I feel like it might be an Oxford in the 80s problem rather than a history problem. And that, I think with why, like, the issue with Oxford in particular, and the reason, like, and you have an interesting, like, study here in that England or Britain has, well, England actually, for what I'm about to say. England has two ancient universities, which are basically the same in every meaningful way. Like, they have similar amounts of money, they have very similar systems, they offer similar degrees, they get, you know, you can only apply to one or that. And yet, one exclusively turns out politicians, and the other has, like, I think, like, two times as many cabinet ministers have been educated at Oxford as came Oxford than Cambridge over the last century or so. So it's like... What happens there? What's the problem there? And the answer that you have to come to, I think, is that when you have, is that it's self-reinforcing, right? And that when people self-select to become politicians, they're exactly the people who don't have a particular depth of analysis or political interests beyond their own ambition, which is the problem with PPE. Like the subject itself, I'm sure, is perfectly great. The problem is that like too many people are like, I'm 16 and I want to be prime minister, therefore I must do PPE at Oxford. And I think that's where it becomes really dangerous. One final question from at Matt Sumption. Um, moving away from Brexit and Steve Bannon, other you know terrific things. Um, are superhero films models of conservative values, as heroes often succeed on individual basis due to innate characteristics? So, do we need more leftist value promoting blockbusters like Star Trek? Much like our earlier discussion with Will Anderson about um, Disney and corporate monopolies, this kind of thing is absolute like catnip to me. Uh, so. Just to kind of dive in, um, I, I I tend to try and avoid um, prescribing political characteristics universally to superheroes because I think so. A character like Captain America is an explicitly political creation. Superman as well, created by Jewish writers um, at the outbreak of the Second World War. Batman and Iron Man too are somewhat political. X Men as well. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so 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 there are there are some explicit political leanings in, in these characters. The emphasis is never so much on the politics that it is. Uh, a coherent world view so you end up getting like political inconsistencies um so for example captain america at least in this representation of the marvel cinematic universe he does things and says things which which we if we attributed to them if we attributed them in real life to politicians like ted cruz when he's talking about uh in captain america civil war about um the need to stand up for individual rights and, and against big government and that kind of thing uh people would be getting a bit uneasy um but the way it's presented in the films it's this like kind of wish wash of like um uh modern liberalism and conservative liberalism embodied by um margaret thatcher and ronald reagan but you you wouldn't classify captain america as from that strand of politics you'd say he's like a leftist probably which he probably kind of is in the films and chris evans is in real life so i think i think there are those inconsistencies um but i do agree that 
they maybe are models of conservative values in some cases definitely in the individual perspective um there, there are great like debates on whether batman is a fascist or not um in the way that he like kind of takes justice into his own hands um doesn't allow for criminals to reform because it's kind of a perpetual cycle of being beaten up by batman and locked in an asylum they're perhaps conservative fantasies um and that makes me question whether one of the reasons we're drawn to these characters is because they are conservative fantasies of individualism and um breaking away from big government and doing things um as you see fit and having the um the raw power to do things as you see fit which makes me think are humans innately attracted to those things big big question to go from from um us uh us talking a bit about cambridge history but um <laughs> i i think it is an interesting question because uh, when you were speaking, Jasper, I was thinking about. Uh, I've watched a lot of superhero movies in my time. A lot of ones I really oh, liked. Yeah. A lot of ones which were kind of rubbish. But you know, I'm kind of X two. Uh, <laughs> you come into my house and you disrespect X two. <laughs> but well, it was funny actually because the X Men is what I was going to talk about because mm. um, you know we don't need to go into you know it's it's a classic. Uh, the the writers of it being quite clear it's like a clear metaphor between about it's meant to be kind of about the civil rights movement um you know with uh, professor x being a kind of malcolm mlk figure and um magneto being a kind of malcolm x figure but i was actually thinking about uh in x3 uh the the last stand which all in all is not a particularly great film there's a kind of cure for mutations right and it's there are some kind of political questions about, you know, the kind of movie kind of gets into about what does it mean to offer a cure for people who are different. And uh, I kind of vividly remember watching, you know, the interviews on the second disc. And like, I remember Ian McKellen, who plays Magneto, saying, you know, I actually think there's something incredibly unpalatable about, you know, offering a cure for the kind of great to 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 give it to the uh the kind of outsiders in society and you know you can see how that metaphor plays out with like the people with mutations potentially being an analogy not just for the civil rights movement but also for gay people lgbt people and why ian mckellen especially might have a particular opinion about that i actually always look back on that it's like quite this is always this is actually really embarrassing to say on my podcast but here we go it was actually quite an important moment in my um the way I conceptualise my identity as an LGBT person and also the way I thought about politics and actually that these films can really mean something to people in a way that, you know, God, X3 was directed by Brett Ratner, a man who <laughs> should never be allowed to make a film ever again. If you go on his Wikipedia page, you can read the sizable section about the Me Too allegations and accusations against him and his sexual conduct. So I think that even potentially if we, you know, to circle back to what you were talking about, Jasper, about the kind of individualism and the conservatism of them, which I think you could read into the idea that, you know, here are films about extraordinary people who are, you know, God god gifted them with um these amazing powers and they should use those powers for good above and beyond you know whining governments or, or whatever it might be so yeah i think you can you can read that but on the other hand i think there is actually an opportunity within some of these films um to see uh, an exploration about what what does it mean to be different um what does you know engaging with your identity having pride in your identity and using your skills you know for the betterment of society i'd feel bad if i didn't mention um uh joe's response to this question as i said he's ill this week which is why he's not here um but me and him had a long discussion about this a couple of weeks ago and uh he wrote a good tweet on this uh several months ago uh, every film is a biopic or a superhero film right now because we are obsessed with stories of individual greatness and we are both nostalgic for a past where we feel like that might have existed and desperate for someone to save us, which is why I can't wait for Detective Pikachu. Which, if you listen to the first episode of the podcast, we discussed extensively. So go back and listen to that if you haven't already. There's definitely an argument, I think, for the idea that um, in terms of conservative values, it's that there is a longing for uh, ideas which conservatism also manifests itself in, if that makes sense. So it's like, I don't know, there's a kind of an idea of like moral decline is really important to a lot of uh, superior films or whatever and saving and like the individual saving people from moral decline. Like that's a very traditional like conservative model in the kind of small C sense of the word in terms of like that's a very um, 
we're losing our norms, we're losing our traditions, and we need someone, perhaps a strong man, or perhaps just an, a powerful individual, perhaps just a kind of determined figure who can set us right. And I think that that's a kind of, uh, that's an interesting parallel, and it perhaps points to something about how we feel, I, I agree with, with Joe, that we are kind of groping in the dark for some kind of uh, figure of authority, some kind of respected figure, and I am curious to see if a culture which is like internet and postmodernism and deeply divided and polarized and all traditional identities seem to be breaking down. And I'm really curious to see if we can find any way through that. And I don't know how I got onto that idea from Captain America Civil War, but we're here now and the journey was one hell of a ride. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of the social review podcast i do hope you enjoyed it as usual the music you heard was sweet of her mouth composed by kevin mcleod licensed under creative commons after recording this week's episode it was announced that chris williamson is to be reinstated as a labor mp and to have the whip returned to him in parliament on wednesday evening the social review published our statement on this development in which we unequivocally condemn the decision Chris Williamson has displayed a consistent pattern of anti-Semitic behaviour over a very long time, and he has made no secret of his contempt for those who seek to challenge anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. And let it be clear, we are on the side of those who challenge anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. The Social Review is a broad church of opinions. It brings in people from all sorts of traditions and factors from across the Labour Party and indeed beyond. We are a movement for progressives and we do not consider there to be any space within the progressive movement for anyone who is discriminatory against minorities, be they Jewish people or any other group. As such, we want to put our platform to good use and we are asking you guys, our readers and listeners, to send in anything you think may be useful in this fight against anti-Semitism. So any um, organisations and groups which you think are doing good work. If you are within the Labour Party, draft motions for constituency parties and conferences. Um, really anything that you feel may help. Furthermore, if you were affected by our initial discussion in this episode on uh, domestic violence and the role of women in politics, then the 24-hour free phone National Domestic Violence Helpline, which is run in partnership between Women's Aid and Refuge, is available on 0808 2000 247. And on that note, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.